Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. Our passage for this week, for the second week in a row, is James 4.13 through 5.12. Again, that's James 4.13 through 5.12. Aldrich Ames had become disillusioned. Disillusioned and desperate. He had joined the CIA in 1962 with hopes of enjoying a promising career in service to his country. But a series of middling performance reviews, an ongoing struggle with alcohol, and an extramarital affair that ended in divorce had changed his outlook on life. After 23 years in the spy business, he had come to the conclusion that the whole concept of espionage was really just a farce, a a colossal waste of time and energy spent trying to defend the expansionistic interests of one empire over another. And he was several thousand dollars in debt. So on the morning of June 13, 1985, he made a life-changing decision. He grabbed a large stack of documents from his office at the CIA's headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and left for a lunch meeting with a Soviet official. He had already betrayed his country once before this. Just a couple of months earlier, he had sold the names of two KGB agents working for the FBI for $50,000. But this time it was different. Ames didn't believe those first two names were of any real value. And he had originally intended only to sell that one bit of information to pay his debts and get out. He hadn't intended to become a KGB informant. This time, though, Ames was carrying a stack of documents containing vital information on some of the CIA's best Soviet sources. With this this move, he was saying, in his own words, over to you, KGB. You guys take care of me now. You know, I've done this. I've demonstrated that I'm holding nothing back. You guys take care of me now. He was becoming a full-blown spy for the Soviet Union. Ames stuffed the documents into a plastic shopping bag. And at lunch, he handed them over to his Soviet contact. Almost immediately, the CIA's entire network of Eastern Bloc spies began to collapse as the Soviet Union began to recall, transfer, arrest, and even execute the Soviet informants that had been identified by Ames. A couple of months later, Ames was remarried. And soon after, he received a kind of wedding gift from the Soviets, the sum of $2 million. Ames would eventually prove to be a better trader than CIA agent. Though his career as a CIA operative was largely marked by a long history of mediocre and even subpar performance reviews, his work as a double agent was unparalleled. In fact, by the time of his arrest, nine years later, he had managed to compromise more CIA assets than any mole in history, more than 100 agents in all. And yet, in spite of it all, Ames never believed that he would be found out. The CIA was simply too large, he reasoned. There were too many agents on the field, too many people to monitor. The only way he could ever be discovered, he figured, was if a Soviet defector identified him. So what was it then that finally did him in? What was, it, what was it that finally blew his cover and outed his real identity? In a word, it was greed. It was greed. Ames had originally attempted to explain his newfound wealth by saying it was from his new wife's side of the family. He even went out of his way to have funds wired directly to her family's accounts in Colombia to provide an air of credibility to his story. Still, other agents became suspicious when Ames started showing up to work with freshly capped teeth and dressed in fine tailored suits. Further investigations revealed that that Ames had paid cash for a $540,000 home in Arlington, Virginia. He drove a $50,000 Jaguar and paid phone bills in excess of $6,000 a month. Long distance calls mostly by his wife to her family in Columbia. Needless to say, that's all a bit unusual for an agent making only $60,000 a year. In 1993, the CIA began an intensive investigation into Ames' activities, and in less than a year, he was arrested. 
He currently resides at the Federal Correction Institute of Terre Haute, Indiana, where he's serving a lifetime sentence for espionage. Now, I can only imagine what you might think of a man like this. After all, we don't tend to think too highly of traitors, and most especially not the type that would go out and sacrifice human lives simply so they can purchase a fancy sports car. But guess what, guys? This type of betrayal actually happens all the time. And it happens in the church, no less. The truth is we are all far more guilty of the type of treachery practiced by Aldrich Ames than we probably care to think about. Our passage once again is James 4, 13-5-12. And in this passage, James addresses the issue of manipulative speech. We're all guilty of practicing manipulative speech from time to time. It may come in the form of feigning certain emotions to elicit a particular response from someone. You know, we may act hurt at times to elicit sympathy, or if someone sinned against us, we might feign offense to evoke feelings of guilt. At other times, we may try to manipulate by, manipulate by changing who we are and how we act or what we say from one person to the next. That's what we call being two-faced. Someone might complain to us about some wrong that's been done to them, and when we're around them, we're outraged by what's happened. But then when we're around the other person, we'll sympathize with them and act like we don't realize why the first person's so upset. Flattery. Right? That would be another form of manipulative speech. Kissing up to someone, going out of your way to compliment someone, or laugh at their jokes, or whatever. That's just another form of deceit. And you do it to manipulate the situation. You do it so that they think well of you, even though secretly you don't think very well of them. So there are all kinds of ways we can do this, all kinds of ways we can try to manipulate with our speech. The way James readers are doing it is with their boasts about the future. They're going around and saying to other people, you know, I'm going to go to such and such a place at such and such a time and make this much money while I'm there. And they're doing this even though, as James points out, they know good and well that they can't control the future to that extent. But they're going around and they're doing it anyways because they want to manipulate other people. How are they doing that? How are they using these boasts to manipulate other people? Well, it's by presenting these boasts in the form of an oath or promise. In other words, his readers aren't just running around and boasting about the future just because they're not just saying, hey, look at me, look at what I'm going to do, look at how great I am, or something like that. No, they're doing it in order to manipulate other people with the guarantees that they're making based on these assumptions. In short, they're going around making promises to other people and they're extracting service from these people on the basis of those promises. The only problem is that they're basing these promises on circumstances they can't control. This is fraud, James points out. It's manipulation. And the source of this manipulation is evil. They're lying about what they can do for their own benefit. That was more or less the big idea of last week's message. I said that in this passage, James addressed the deception, the danger, and the direction for manipulative speech. Again, that's the deception, the danger, and the direction for manipulative speech. And we started by looking first, last week, at the deception. The deception of manipulative speech, I explained, is that it comes from hidden motives. The reason why a person will lie or deceive with their tongue, be that with the sort of boasting we see here, or the sort of duplicity or emotional dishonesty I mentioned just a moment ago, whatever the case, the reason why someone will do this is because there's something they want, which they think they have to cheat to obtain. They're trying to acquire some type of idol, and since God isn't going to give it to them fair and square, they're resorting to dishonest and underhanded means to get it. I said that this is what's being revealed about us whenever we resort to manipulative speech. We're demonstrating that somewhere beneath the surface, an idol is lurking. There's something that we want more than God, which we don't think God is giving to us in sufficient measure, and the way that desire is working itself up into our actions is with our deceptive speech. 
our untrue statements either about God or about ourselves or about other people. In the case of James readers, that idol is money. It would seem that there are these rich Christians who are going around and hiring their poor brothers to work in their fields. And that all sounds well and good at first. After all, who better to hire than a brother, right? Who better to bless with a job than a fellow brother in need? So at first blush, this all seems like a very good thing. This seems like an act of compassion. The only problem is that it would seem these richer Christians are afraid that they're not going to turn a profit. They're hiring their brothers to harvest their fields, but then after they get the crop, they're fearful that something's going to happen to prevent them from making money off it before they get it to market. And so rather than pay their brothers outright for the job they agreed to do, they're saying, look, I can't pay you right now. But don't worry, so-and-so and I are going to go to such-and-such a city for a period of time, and we'll make X amount of money there, and after we get money from that, I'll pay you. I promise. Of course, the error with this sort of thinking is that not only does it demonstrate an incredible lack of faith in God to provide for their needs, but it's also extremely self-centered and selfish. What these rich are effectively trying to do is leverage the contingencies of God's plans against their poorer brethren. See, they're acting like they can guarantee a profit off these crops when they know good and well they can't which is actually exactly why they're trying to kick their responsibility to pay down the road. They realize that something can happen to keep them from making a profit. I mean, bandits might attack the crop while it's in transit, or if they're transporting it by boat, the ship might sink. They simply may be unable to find a buyer. There are all kinds of contingencies they can't account for that may prevent them from making a profit. And so rather than absorb that risk themselves, they're passing it along to their brothers by making their payment conditional on whether or not they can make a profit. Essentially, they're using the poor as a kind of human shield. If God's going to do something to thwart their plans, then it's their poor brothers who'll have to pay the price, not them. And the price, just so you know, is dear. It's incredibly dear. In fact, I think that we'll see in today's passage... Some of these brothers are apparently so poor that they may even be dying from their poverty. Or if they're not dead yet, they're close. They're literally starving to death as they await payment. And all of this, of course, is entirely contrary to the gospel. The gospel proclaims the sacrificial love of Christ. It proclaims how God lavished His riches upon the spiritually poor. It's a message of compassion graciously displayed to those in need. And so the natural expectation would be that those who have so freely received this incredibly costly gift in their hour of need, that they of all people would be among the first to offer the same sort of compassion to others. The rich, of course, aren't doing that. In fact, they're doing the exact opposite of that. So far from sacrificing for their brothers, they're defrauding and murdering them instead. In other words, these rich brothers aren't so different from Aldrich Ames, you see. They're traitors just the same. In fact, they're more than traitors. They're double agents. They're pretending like they're ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven when in reality they're serving the interests of this world. They're what James calls double-minded They have one eye on heaven while the other is fixed here on earth on the joys and luxuries of this life. This morning we're going to explore the danger, the danger that exists in this kind of treachery. At the conclusion of last week's message, I asked you to spend some time this week reflecting on how you may be guilty of manipulative speech. I also asked you to reflect on what that speech might reveal about your idols I said that we'd see how James addresses these idols this week. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Let's see what James has to say. The passage, once again, is James 4, 13 to 5, 12. And without any further delay, let's go ahead and read this passage together. James says this. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. In the passage we just read, James explains to us the deception, the danger, and the direction for manipulative speech. And once again, we looked at the deception of manipulative speech last week. The deception is that manipulative speech comes from hidden motives. Once again, it comes from hidden motives. Now this week, we're going to explore the danger of manipulative speech. Again, that's the danger of manipulative speech. The danger of manipulative speech is this. Hidden motives will be discovered and condemned. Once again, let me say that. Hidden motives will be both discovered and condemned. We see this point in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. James says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I mentioned last week that there are a lot of times when I'm working, I'll come out of my office and when my kids see me, they'll ask me to play a game with them. There are a lot of different games we like to play together. Well, one of the games we like to play is hide-and-seek. They they love playing hide-and-seek with Dad. We'll take turns. You know, sometimes I'll count and the kids will go run and hide and other times one of them will count and I'll run and hide. Well, if you've ever played hide-and-seek with little kids, you can know that they're not always the best at hiding, right? Don't get me wrong, sometimes they really surprise me. Just the other day, actually, I was calling for Elijah. Uh, We weren't even playing hide-and-seek. I was just calling out for him, and I don't hear anything back. And so I walk into his room, and I still don't see or hear anything. And all of a sudden, he jumps out from behind the door, giggling. Uh, You know, he had surprised Dad. I was totally surprised. It was a great hiding place. I had no idea he was there. Still, most of the times, it isn't too hard to find the kids. They'll run behind a curtain, right? And they think because they can't see you that they're well hidden, but their feet are totally sticking out from the bottom of the curtain. Or they'll run into a closet, but you know the the closet door isn't quite shut all the way, so you know that at least one of them is in there. Maybe they bury themselves under the blankets on the bed and They do make a pretty convincing lump of blankets. Uh, It's just blankets aren't normally so noisy as they are, right? Like you walk into the room and they start giggling. It doesn't matter how hard they try, it seems there's always a tell. There's always something to tip Dad off about where they're hiding. 
Of course, they don't always realize this. They don't know that I can see their feet or that I notice they left the closet door open just a crack. And that's because all in all, we like to think we're pretty clever, don't we? In short, we're pretty arrogant. We're pretty proud. We have a pretty high estimation of our own skills at deceiving others. And no doubt we sometimes can be quite successful at deceiving others. Even still, it doesn't matter how good we are, there always seems to be a tell, a hint. There always seems to be at least one clue that we leave behind to inform others of our real intent. For Aldrich Ames, it was his capped teeth and tailored suits. For nine years, the CIA searched to find their mole, and they searched in vain. They couldn't figure it out. And once again, Ames didn't think they ever would figure it out. He thought the organization was just too big. That there was just no way they could sift through all the data, all the connections, and find their way back to the source of the leaked information. But then in his arrogance, Ames started to flaunt his wealth. And it was that arrogance that ultimately gave him away. The CIA didn't find him so much as he revealed himself by flaunting his money. That was his tell. That was the clue that that tipped off his fellow agents to his real identity. There's always a tell. There's always a hint. Whenever we try to cover something up, there's always at least one clue, one piece of evidence that reveals the secret we're trying to cover. And do you know what? God knows what that tell is. He always knows. You can't hide from Dad. Your father always knows. That's what we see unfold in this passage today. James readers think they're clever. They think they've fooled everyone. They're refusing to show mercy to their brother. They're even defrauding him of what's rightfully his. But they think they have everyone fooled. And they're essentially saying, Who, me? You know what I do wrong? I said they're going to get paid, and I mean it. I just got to wait till I get the money, okay? It can't be helped. It would seem that from chapter 2, they've, they may have fooled the church leaders with this con. Who knows? Perhaps they've even managed to, fill, to fool themselves. Maybe they've convinced themselves that they really are merciful in providing work and making payment contingent upon these promises. But James knows the tell. And he lets them know God knows it too. What is that tell? Verses 2 and 3. After telling these rich to weep and howl for the judgment that's awaiting them, he explains, he says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Do you guys see that there? What's the evidence of their true motives? What's the proof that betrays their real intent? It's quite simple. It's, in fact, it's the same thing that ratted out Aldrich Ames. It's their riches. It's their wealth. James says that their wealth will be evidence against them. He even says that it will eat their flesh like fire on the day of judgment. I believe he continues this line of reasoning down in verse 5 when he says, You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And then he continues, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The idea is that as they've built up their wealth, they've only managed to increase their condemnation. Once again, their wealth will be the noose by which they hang. See, these rich Christians can act like they want to show mercy to their brothers. They can act like they really would pay them if they only had the money. And that there's just nothing they can do until they get their crop to market. But guess what? Their wealth says otherwise. Their wealth says otherwise. Their fancy clothes and their money purses filled with gold and silver say otherwise. These all testify to the fact that they really could pay if they wanted to. They just don't want to. There's something they want more, and that something is comfort. They want to maintain their luxurious lifestyle at the cost of their brother's suffering. Sure, they'll pay eventually, just so long as it doesn't cost them any sort of discomfort in the end. Again, there's nothing Christian about that sort of attitude. And what James is telling them here is that God knows. He knows. They might be able to fool everyone else. They may even be able to fool themselves, but they can't fool God. 
God can see what's really going on in their heart. It's like it says in Hebrews 4, 12-13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Listen, guys, you know how a really good prosecuting attorney knows how to make a witness incriminate themselves on the witness stand. You know how they'll follow a line of questioning that gets the witness to reveal the inconsistencies in their story. Well, listen up. God is the greatest prosecuting attorney who ever lived. He, better than anyone else, knows how to use His law to expose what's really going on in the human heart. You understand He doesn't condemn without evidence. No, He uses evidence. The evidence is the law. It's His commands. They demonstrate a twisted heart. And He can bring that law to bear to expose every hidden intent and conspiracy of the soul. And that's exactly what's happened here. The way these rich brothers have used these oaths and then the riches that they're hoarding up in the meantime, these all serve to testify to their selfish desires. And the result we find in verse 4 is that the wages of the laborers who mowed their fields are crying out against them. The money that they're still holding on to, the money that they haven't paid, it's bearing witness against them. James says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And note how he phrases that, by the way. He uses the perfect tense. The cries have already reached God's ears. The idea is that not only are the poor crying out, but God hears them. He's already aware of their complaint. Again, he knows, guys. They may have been able to fool everyone else, but they haven't fooled God because you can't fool God. I want you to keep that in mind, brothers and sisters. The next time you try to use manipulative speech against a brother or sister in Christ. You may be able to pull it off for a while. You may be able to get them to buy into your game. Your manipulation may even manage to get you what you want for a period of time. The problem, though, is that you can't fool God. God understands. He knows what you're really after. It's like what David writes in Psalm 139. He says, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 5, He says, O Lord, You've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and You lay Your hand upon me. He continues, verse 7, He says, Where shall I go from Your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15, he says, my frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Do you hear that? David says that there's nothing that's hidden from God's sight. There's nothing that he doesn't know about, nothing that he doesn't understand about you. And don't get me wrong, to some degree there's great comfort in that truth, is there not? That's actually how David writes this psalm. He's taking comfort in the fact that God knows him that well. That's most definitely reassuring, for instance, when we consider the cross and the concept of forgiveness. To know that there's nothing that's going to ultimately surprise God and make Him want to take back the grace that He's offered to us. No, He knows all of our sin ahead of time, and He forgives us still. So there's comfort in this. It means that our salvation is secure. And yet it also means that when you do try to hide your sin from Him, you're not going to get very far. He knows you so well that He even knows what you're going to think before you do. Okay, so so what? You might say, what's the big deal about that? So God catches me. Okay, so what? So I don't get away with it. Why is that such a big deal? Well, the reason why it's a big deal, brothers and sisters, is because God really doesn't like it when His creatures try to fool Him. 
He really doesn't like it when his creatures try to fool him. If you would, keep a finger here in James 5. And then turn with me to Isaiah 29 for a moment. I want you to see this with me. This is a really good example of how, how God responds to those who try to fool Him by hiding the intentions of their heart. Isaiah 29, just for context, the people are conspiring to go to Egypt for help without asking God for His opinion on the matter. And that's sort of a problem. After all, God redeemed Israel from the nation of Egypt with great signs and wonders meant to demonstrate the futility of Egypt's gods. And now Israel is turning to Egypt for help. Well, as they do this, they're going through their normal religious performances as if their faith and hope is still in God. And here in this passage, God tells them that He knows better. And He tells them what He thinks of their little scheme. He says, Isaiah 29, verses 13 to 16, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor Me with their lips, while their hearts are far from Me, and their fear of Me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding? You guys see that? God says, Who do you think you're dealing with here? Who do you think I am? Do you think I'm so blind that I can't see what's really going on here? What, you think you're my maker or something? So I'll tell you what, this is what I'm going to do. You tried hiding your plans from me, so I'm going to hide my plans from you. And let's see who's better at this game. Let's see who's really in control here, shall we? He promises to discipline them. And the reason he does it, if you're paying attention, is because of their arrogance. When they try to hide their plans, they're trying to reverse the roles between creature and creator. Now, set this concept back in the context of James 4. And you can go ahead and turn back there. Set this back in the context of James 4, where James has just told his readers that God is disciplining them for their idolatry, where he has also told them that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And now let's consider one more time why it might be such a big deal to try to hide the intentions of our hearts with our speech. Are you starting to follow me here? This is the danger of manipulative speech. The deception is that it tries to cover hidden motives. And the danger is that God is not only going to uncover those hidden motives, but He's going to answer them. Now, how does this work? What does that look like? I think there are two answers to that question, how God answers these hidden motives, and they apply to two different groups of people. The the first comes from context, and it applies to the believer. The second comes from this passage right in front of us, and although it applies to the unbeliever, it's still written for the sake of the believer. So how does God answer these hidden motives? Well, first, contextually, we know that God will answer this arrogance by disciplining the believer. He'll discipline the believer. That's been the front and center issue since at least the middle of chapter 4. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He jealously yearns over the spirit that He's made to dwell in us. Draw near to God, therefore, James says, and He will draw near to you. This is why they don't have, James explains. They don't have because they don't ask. And even when they do ask, they ask wrongly to spend it on their own pleasures. In short, God is disciplining them for their idolatry. He's correcting them so that they'll turn to Him once again. Again, that's been the idea since at least the middle of chapter 4. In fact, I have to say, the more I've wrestled with these last two chapters in James, which honestly have always kind of puzzled me, the more I think I realize that that's actually been one of the front and center issues since the very beginning of this epistle. If I could go back and re-preach chapter 1, for instance, I'd probably change some things I said there. 
Like, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I repeatedly implied that the trials that are occurring in chapter 1 are probably some type of persecution. Well, the more I've thought about this, the more I don't think that's actually what's going on there. Instead, if I had to guess, and it would be a guess, it would be speculation, but if I had to guess, I'd still be fairly confident that the trials that James is referring to are God's frustration of the riches' plans over here in chapters 4 and 5. Like, I'm pretty certain they've made these types of promises, and then God didn't bless their plans. And that would be why, at the end of chapter 1, they're saying, God's making me sin. Are you starting to see this? It's because there are these disputes breaking out after their plans failed, and their poor brothers aren't getting paid, and these poor Christians are calling them before these tribunals, slandering the rich up and down all over the place because they're angry they're not getting paid. And you know who the rich are blaming? They're blaming God. They're saying, look, it's not my fault. God just didn't bless the plan, all right? He's the reason you're not getting paid. Take, don't take it up with me. Take it up with Him. Basically, they've used the poor as human shields, and God decided He wasn't going to play that game. He wasn't going to be manipulated into complying with their arrogance. So God has answered these arrogant boasts with a series of trials that have made these brothers fail to deliver on their promises. And now that they're being held account to account for it, they're blaming God for the fact they don't have the money. And James is saying, no, God isn't the reason. Chapter 4, let me tell you why you don't have. You don't have because you don't ask. It's just like Isaiah 29. James says, your problem is that you didn't ask God to provide. Instead, you tried to force His hand. And God isn't going to let you do that. You know why? Because He's jealous for you. Of course, James then continues by addressing the motives and all this. And he says, and then, even then, when you do ask God, you clearly ask with wrong motives. You ask God to bless your plans when clearly by your manipulative speech, you demonstrate that you're just in it for yourselves. You ask out of a love for this world, and you know what? God's not going to answer that either. Again, because He's jealous for you. It would seem that this entire conflict that's been stirred up among these brothers has been rooted in these Christians' tendency to boast in their arrogance. And that is why James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He writes that because these trials specifically have been designed to expose and uproot the idols that have been hidden in these brothers' hearts. God is quite clearly disciplining them for their good. So, again, this is one consequence of manipulative speech. It invites the disciplinary correction of God. This is why I said last week that you're basically inviting God to thwart your plans when you start to boast about the the kinds of things that you're going to go out and do. And the same warning applies to every form of manipulative speech that you might try to adopt. If you're His child, you have to understand He's jealous for you. He zealously yearns for your attention and worship. Indeed, He's redeemed you for that express purpose. And that not only requires your wholehearted devotion to Him, it also requires your humility and faith, your dependence on Him. So if you're a Christian, then most especially you can expect that God will answer your attempts at manipulation by not only exposing the idols of your heart, but by also reminding you that you're not the one in control. He is. He will discipline you. And I think I've already made this clear, but let me just state it again so there's absolutely no confusion. He will discipline you, and that's not because He hates you. It's because He loves you. It doesn't doesn't contradict the gospel to say that God acts this way. It amplifies it. The same zeal that God caused to sacrifice His own Son for your salvation also leads Him to pursue you for your sanctification. Again, He wants to be in fellowship with you, Christian. And that is what he's doing when he disciplines your arrogant tongue. He's calling you back to humility, back to dependence and faith in him. So that's one way that God answers manipulative speech. With correction, he disciplines the ones he loves. What's the second way? What's the second way he answers this type of speech? The second way is much more serious than the first. We find it right here in today's passage, and it applies primarily to the unbeliever, but James includes it here for the instruction of the believer. The second way God answers the manipulative speaker is this. 
He will condemn them. I'll say that one more time. He will condemn them. I've said that God knows the hidden intents of the heart and that He can even use the law as evidence to expose these hidden motives. Well, I want you to look at our passage for a moment. And I want you to ask yourself, what is being exposed? What is being exposed about these richer brothers in this instance? What do their riches bear witness to? Take a look there for a second, see if you can figure it out. If you look, verse 6, James refers to the fact that they've condemned and murdered the innocent, so maybe that's it. Maybe we could say it's bearing witness to their lack of mercy. But if you're paying attention, the evidence there seems to point to the blameless conduct of the poor. James says he does not resist you, and that seems to be pointing... Uh, not so much to the rich brother's wickedness, but to the poor brother's innocence. Their restraint demonstrates the purity of their motives. Point being, there, the rich are not justified in their attacks on the poor. The attacks are unprovoked. This is not a just war, so to speak. There's no stand-your-ground law in place to defend their actions, because clearly they weren't being attacked in the first place. They're the instigator in this conflict. So again, what's the evidence pointing to? What's, this, what's being revealed about the rich? Verse 3, do you see it? James says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Do you see that? Their covetousness, which is demonstrated in their manipulative speech, is it's evidence to the fact that what? That they have laid up treasure in the last days. That they've set their hope in earthly things rather than in heavenly ones. Again, do you see this? How does James describe their riches here? He says it's, it's, it's rotted and moth-eaten. He says that their gold and silver have corroded. And that's pretty notable because gold and silver don't corrode. They don't rust. But James speaks as if it's crumbling into dust. Why? Because his point is that all of that is perishing. It isn't going to last. It's incredibly temporary. James is highlighting the perishable nature of this world, which is soon to come under the judgment of God, and he's saying all you've managed to demonstrate, you rich, is that you've chosen the losing side. God is going to soon wipe this world away, and by choosing wealth over the well-being of your brother, you've aligned yourself with the loser in this whole ordeal. You lived by your wealth? Well, guess what? You'll die by it too. Just see if it'll protect you from the wrath of God. I think of Psalm 49, where the psalmist says, Don't fear the rich, and then he explains why. He says, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? He says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the, see the pit. You've seen this at work before, I think. The rich can often use their wealth to escape justice in this life. Can they not? They can bribe a judge. They can receive preferential treatment from the court, just like we saw back in chapter 2. And that, that can very often lead them to think that they're somehow above the law. But guess what? It's not going to work that way when they stand before God. In this case, James says their wealth will actually bear witness against them. Most specifically, it will testify to the fact that they do not seek God. And I think you have to understand this fact if you're going to understand the language that James uses here. Uh, Look here, verse 1, he tells them to weep and howl for the miseries that are to come upon them. Verse 3, he speaks of their flesh being eaten like fire. That's a play on the idea of corrosion, by the way. Just as the riches are being eaten up and turned to dust, so also will the rich suffer the same fate. I mean, he really seems to be painting a a very vivid picture of condemnation, of hell, really. And you may wonder wonder to yourself, how can that be? Can we really perish on the basis of our love for money? Isn't salvation by grace through faith and not by the works of the law? Yes, absolutely it's by grace. Absolutely it's through faith. But that's just the point here. James is saying that what these rich are demonstrating is that they do not have faith. 
Again, that was the point back in chapter 2. Faith manifests itself in works, and most specifically in deeds of compassion. And what these rich are demonstrating is that they don't have that kind of faith. They're not showing compassion. And the reason why they're not is because their hope is here. In this life, they're storing up treasure in the last days. You see, James is telling these rich, you're double agents. You're pretending like you belong to the kingdom of heaven, but you really belong to the other side. And it's evident by the inconsistency in your speech. It's evident by your covetousness. These rich are spiritual Aldrich Ameses. They've sold out to the other side. And their speech is what's giving them away. That's the clue. That's the tell. And James writes this passage to tell them your secret is out. God knows and your judgment is imminent. You fools, don't you realize what you've done? You've aligned yourself with the enemy at just the moment he's about to perish. You've fattened your hearts on the very day of slaughter. And if this continues, you will perish with him. So repent while you still have time. In short, this passage is written as a warning. Again, these rich think that they're very clever. They've managed to manipulate their brothers. They've managed to fool the church tribunal. They've more or less managed to escape the consequences of their sin thus far. But what James wants them to know is that the judge they really need to worry about doesn't preside over a human court, but a heavenly one. It's God. And they can't fool Him. They can't fool God. And if they do not turn, then they will have to answer for their crimes be it in this life or, God forbid, even in the next. So they must repent. God offers mercy, but only for a time. And they're already in the last days, so they must repent now while they still have time. Back in seminary, Pastor MacArthur used to refer to something he called the time and truth principle. The way the time and truth principle works is like this. He'd say, Given enough time, the truth will come out. Given enough time, the truth will come out. He used to say it to us as future pastors to warn us, to tell us that if we wander into sin, we may be able to hide it for a little while. But the truth will come out eventually. I still remember the passage he was speaking on the first time I heard him speak about it. 1 Timothy 5.24, it says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. Just remember, John would say, what man covers, God will uncover. And what man uncovers, God will cover. The idea was, number one, that we needed to be serious about staying away from sin. And number two, that if we ever did happen to stumble, then the best course always, always was to own our sin and to confess it right away. Because the longer we waited, the more we ran the risk of God doing the uncovering for us. And generally speaking, that path isn't preferable. It's certainly preferable to having nothing done about it, but the consequences are generally going to be more severe if God has to uncover our sin than if we choose to uncover it ourselves. God offers mercy and grace when we uncover it ourselves. Again, what man covers, God will uncover, and what man uncovers, God will cover. That's really what James is describing here. It's the time and truth principle. He's warning his readers, given enough time, the truth will come out, so best come forward and confess your sin now while you still have the chance. I think of Proverbs 29.1. It says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Let me read that one more time. That's an important verse. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. That seems to be the process that God uses in Scripture. He doesn't condemn straight away. He disciplines first and issues warnings. And only then, after those warnings have been rejected over and over again, does he condemn. He's already disciplined these rich with trials, and James is warning them that if they continue to persist in their rebellion, in spite of these corrections, then it very well may be revealed that their faith isn't even genuine in the first place. And then it's not temporal consequences they need to be worrying about, but eternal ones. I want you to think about the idols that you're attempting to cover with your manipulative speech. 
And I'd have you consider where you may be on this spectrum. Of course, we're all going to be guilty of some form of idolatry from time to time. But I think it's more than possible you're not entirely given over to it. Perhaps you sin with your tongue, you realize the fault soon after, confess it and repent. If that's the case, then I wouldn't expect, I would not expect that you're currently undergoing any serious type of discipline for your speech because there's nothing to correct. You know your error, you're owning it, and you're putting it away. That's all God wants you to do. You're already on the right track. But maybe your case is more advanced. Maybe you're not identifying and repenting of your idols, and you're heaping lie on top of lie to try to keep that idol covered. Maybe you're practicing all types of flattery, duplicity, in an effort to manipulate others to give you what you want, and you're settled on that course of action. There's no confession of sin, no turning away. You're just set hard on that course. If so, I would expect that if you stop to think about it for a time, you'd probably see that God is frustrating your plans. He's refusing to give you what you want. Well, if so, here's what you need to realize. If you don't heed that correction, then what may be evidenced in the long run is that you actually don't belong to Christ that you're actually aligned with the other side. And if that's the case, then to quote Hebrews 10, 26-27, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So take a moment and reflect. Whose side are you on? Where do your allegiances lie? Are you contending with the idols of this world by repenting of your manipulative speech? Or like Aldrich Ames, have you said to the enemy, Over to you, idols. You guys take care of me now. You know, I've done this. I've demonstrated I'm holding nothing back. You guys take care of me now. If so, brothers and sisters, you need to realize you can't fool God. You aren't doing yourself any favors by continuing to ignore the idols in your heart. It doesn't doesn't matter how many others you manage to convince about the sincerity of your faith. God still knows the truth. All in all, friends, the basic message today is pretty simple. It's time to drop the charade, isn't it? doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum of God's discipline, the answer is still the same. You need to drop the charade. You need to put away your idols and repent of your manipulative speech. And with this in mind, I'd like to close with this exhortation from Colossians 3, 1-10. Paul says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, saying that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let's pray.